All right. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 9? In our study in the book of Revelation, we have just entered into chapter 9. And, you know, once again, by way of quick review, because for the sake of the new folks, we can't just barge right in. They won't know where we are. But uh, by way of quick review, so far, we have seen Jesus open the seven seal judgments. Now, as we saw, the seventh seal unleashed the seven trumpet judgments, which we began to look at in chapter 8. At that time, we saw that the first four trumpet judgments affect the physical universe uh, in the way of uh, vegetation, uh, oceans, seas, fresh water. And then it causes the fourth trumpet causes the light of the sun, moon, and stars to be uh, cut by a third. But with now the sounding of the fifth trumpet, the focus shifts from the physical to the spiritual realm. Uh, the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments unleash upon the inhabitants of the earth, as we said last time, Demonic judgments that are so horrific, it's really hard to comprehend what it's going to be like for the people living on the earth at that time. Uh, I'm glad we're going to have a balcony seat. I don't want to be on the playing field. But Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, when John says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, uh, as we said last time, this is not another meteor or asteroid uh, falling to the earth. As we saw in chapter 8, verse 8, when John saw something like a great mountain burning with fire that was cast into the sea. I do believe that was uh, a meteor uh, entering the earth's atmosphere. But uh, this is not the same thing because uh, this star, quote-unquote, uh, is given personality. Personality is ascribed to this star by use of the personal pronoun him. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. As we said last week, Job chapter 38 verse 7 calls the angels of God stars. That's not the only place uh, in the scriptures. Uh, angels are referred to as stars oftentimes. Uh, this one falls from heaven to the earth, but the Greek is actually, at verse 1 is, uh, has or had fallen. In other words, John is saying, I saw a star, an angel, that had fallen to the earth. And as we said last time, I believe this is none other than Satan himself. Even as Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So John tells us that Satan, if this is Satan, and I believe it is, but John tells us that Satan, listen, is given the key to the bottomless pit, which is abuso in the Greek. This tells us that Satan doesn't control this key. Doesn't control this key. It had to be given to him by the Lord Jesus, who alone holds the keys of death in Hades. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18 tells us. Verse 2, And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were, were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. So, guys, out of the shaft to the bottomless pit, there comes a thick, polluting smoke that covers the earth like a shroud, blocking out uh, 
the light of the sun, which is fitting because as Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so God gives them darkness, but not only darkness. Verse 3, Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. There were, they were commanded not to harm the grass or the, uh, of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These locusts that crawl out of the abuso are not allowed to harm, not allowed to feed upon any grass or green vegetation or any trees, but only people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, uh, locusts are known for their ability to strip the earth of all green vegetation. One author noted, and I quote, locust swarms consume all vegetation in their path. The scene is reminiscent of the locust plague in Egypt, which the psalmist said there were so many locusts, they were innumerable. The author goes on, reminds, is reminiscent of the locust plague in Egypt, uh, Exodus 10 tells us, and of the description of the locust plague in Joel, chapters 1 and 2. But this is far worse, the author says. The imaginary, uh, the imagery of the smoke is an apt description of a locust plague, since millions of the grasshopper-like insects swarm so thickly that they can darken the sky and blot out the sun, turning day into night. Locust swarms can be unimaginably huge. One swarm over the Red Sea in 1889 was reported to have covered 2,000 square miles. The destruction they can cause to crops and other vegetation is staggering. Another author, John Phillips, writes, and I quote, The worst locust plague in modern times struck the Middle East in uh, 1951-52, when in Iran, Iraq, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, every green and growing thing was devoured across hundreds of thousands of square miles. Locusts eat grain, leaf, and stalk right down to the bare ground. When a swarm arises and flies on its way, the green field is left a desert, Barrenness and desolation stretches as far as the eye can see, end quote. So, needless to say, locusts can eat a lot of stuff, a lot of green vegetation in their path. Since these locusts don't touch any green tree or grass or any vegetation at all, it tells us these are not natural locusts. They're not natural locusts. So what are they? Well, I believe that these are supernatural demonic locusts. How do we know that? Well, because first of all, they come from the Abuso. That is the place in the center of the earth where demons are imprisoned. The New Testament te teaches us that. And these locusts, interestingly, have a king over them. Verse 11, And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. You know the best commentary on the Bible is? The Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Proverbs 30, verse 27. 
okay? It says, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in rings. Not just a simple, the author, Solomon, was just presenting a simple idea. Locusts don't have a king, but they still move like an army, you know, in a direction to do their damage, all right? But this is interesting to me. These locusts have a king, but natural locusts, the Bible says, don't have a king. So these aren't natural locusts, is my point. This is a demonic army because they have a demonic king over them. There, there's an interesting verse, guys, in Amos chapter 7, verse 1. Don't bother looking it up. You're not going to understand it. I don't. I'll just be honest with you. There is an interesting verse in Amos 7, verse 1, as recorded in the ASV, American Standard Version, and the King James Version. Um, I'll read it to you the ASV, Amos 7, 1. <laughs> Thus the Lord Jehovah showed me, and behold, he formed, the, he formed locusts in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Did you get that? <laughs> you say, what is that? I, I have no idea. But I know it doesn't make any sense in our translations. But look, our Old Testament uh, translation of the Hebrew is taken from the Masoretic text, which dates back to about 900 A.D. But the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew into the Greek, done roughly 270 B.C. is 1,200 years earlier, which means it's closer to the original manuscripts. When Jesus quoted the Old Testament, he was quoting out of the Septuagint. All right, Septuagint means 70, because back in the 3rd century before Christ, uh, Greek was the dominant language. Hebrew had become almost a dead language. It was spoken by the rabbis and by the priests. But uh, like uh, us Roman Catholics back in the day, when they still did the Mass in Latin, nobody understood it. Uh, it sounded pretty, but uh, you know nobody really understood what was being said because nobody spoke Latin, okay? So because the common Jew couldn't read their own scriptures, they hired 70 scholars, 70 uh, people to translate, that's what Septuagint means, 70, to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, okay? Here's what the Septuagint, how it reads Amos 7, verse 1. Interesting. The Lord has shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming, and behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. Oh, isn't that interesting? The name Gog is used 11 times in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and once in Revelation 20. I'll read you that passage. Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. When the Lord Jesus comes back, all right, he uh, destroys the uh, enemy's armies. I mean, the Antichrist, uh, you know, has his armies to go to war against Jesus. They think they're going to overthrow him, keep him from coming and establishing his kingdom. How deceived uh, they will be. And it's not even a, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. It's no battle. The Lord speaks the word, vaporizes this army, takes the false prophet and the uh, Antichrist, 
throws them alive into the lake of fire, and binds Satan for a thousand years in the Abusa. After the thousand years has expired, God lets him out for a little while. You say, why would God do that? Because during the, uh, the uh, millennial kingdom, millennial kingdom, Jesus has been reigning over the whole earth from Jerusalem, right? Nobody's had a choice who they wanted to worship or serve. Jesus uh, is the only one that is allowed to be worshipped and served. He is the king of all the earth, right? And a lot of people will have been born during this period of time. Now, we will have our glorified bodies. So when we come back with the Lord, as he establishes his kingdom, we'll enter in. We won't marry and have kids anymore. We'll have our glorified bodies. But there's going to be a lot of people who will be alive when Jesus returns, who will be believers. They've accepted Christ during the tribulation period. They've hid out from the Antichrist. They've made it, okay? They will be allowed to enter the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. They will marry, have children. Those kids will grow up and have marry and have kids. A thousand years. Death will be very rare. So the earth is going to be repopulated. How many people will cover the earth? And the whole world will have a tropical climate. So there you can live anywhere and, and so on. Who knows how many billions of people will be born uh, during this time, right? But they've never had the ability, the chance to exercise their free will. You, you can't have free and fair elections if there's only one candidate, right? You have to have at least two to, to be able to vote, right? Same is true with your free will. Free will doesn't matter if there's only one person to choose to worship. So the Lord, and you know, maybe you've heard this, people have said to me over the years, I don't think it's fair I'm being punished for Adam's sin. I didn't blow it in the garden. If I was there, I wouldn't have messed up and eaten that forbidden fruit. Yeah, right. Okay, well. All right, well, it's okay. A lot of people think that way. So God's going to give them a chance. After a thousand years of living with the greatest king in the universe, the kindest, the most just and fair and loving, all they've known is prosperity and beauty and paradise on earth, right? For a thousand years. So then at one point, Satan is released from the bottomless pit. And he goes around the earth, and, and, and as we're going to see, he takes with him a bunch of his lieutenants to come back with him and they go about the face of their whole earth tempting people to join a rebellion against the lord if you can believe this all right and after a thousand years of living in paradise with jesus christ on the throne there is still enough evil in the heart of man where the first chance he gets who knows how many billions probably will follow the devil in his rebellion and he, the devil is promising, going to promise them that they can overthrow God, overthrow Jesus, and take this kingdom for themselves. After the last person decides to either follow Christ or the devil, that's all there is. There's no war. There's no rebellion, uh, insurrection. As soon as the last person makes their decision, that's when the Lord establishes his great white throne judgment, awakens or, uh, or re, um, resurrects everybody in Hades that has been there since the beginning of time, unbelievers, 
along with these tribulation people that rejected Christ. And we're going to get to it, Revelation 20. They stand before him and eventually are cast into the lake of fire, into hell. Okay? But after this thousand years, we read in Revelation 20, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. That's how many people Satan gets to follow him in his rebellion. Amazing. It could be that the same demon that leads this army of locust demons called Apollyon and Abaddon will possess the leader of this final battle spoken of in Revelation 20. Um, this Gog, uh, ruler of Magog, uh, could be some kind of an earthly ruler that's possessed by this very demon, or uh, maybe the demon himself posing as some leader uh, uh, in the world. I don't know. We'll, we'll take a closer look at this when we get to chapter 20. I wanted to just throw that out to you just so you have uh, this in your mind, okay? But um, verse 4, Revelation 9, verse 4. These locust-like creatures were commanded not to harm the green, excuse me, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, first, let me stop and say this. Uh, skeptics point out that in chapter 8, verse 7, we read that all the green grass was burned up in the first trumpet judgment. So how could these locusts be commanded not to touch the green grass, they say, when it has already been destroyed? All right, fair question. I remember some time ago watching a documentary, one of those nature programs, which I enjoy, about grasses and how, uh, how vital grasses are uh, to the ecosystems of the earth. And they made it a point to show how that during uh, forest fires, you know, that come through and just destroy large areas of forest and grass, uh, just after a, a few weeks, already you see the grass growing up already. And it doesn't take long. God has designed it that way. And so, you know, uh, all we can say is that... Um, some time has elapsed between chapter 8, verse 7, and now chapter 9, verse 4. So obviously the grasses have grown back, uh, which they are prone to do. Um, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads is a reference to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that were sealed from God's judgment back in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. So God says, leave them alone. They're mine. I have sealed them uh, to protect them from my judgments. But those who do not have the seal, uh, my seal on their foreheads, uh, my judgment shall be poured out upon them. Um, now, there may have been others sealed uh, when God sealed the 144,000. We don't know. It just mentions they were the ones that was focusing on, right? Uh, there could have been others. It might be that every person who was a believer at that time was sealed. I kind of think that. I mean, these punishments are poured out against the ungodly. Anybody who accepts Christ during the tribulation period, uh, I kind of think what's going to happen is as soon as somebody accepts Christ, boom, at that moment, boom, they're sealed. 
And they're protected now because they're no longer a child of wrath. They're now a child of God, right? So they're instantly sealed, I believe, in their foreheads from God's judgment upon the wicked. Verse 5. And they were not given authority. These locusts were not given authority to kill them, unbelievers. But to torment them for five months, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Have you ever? I don't know if anybody's ever been stung by a scorpion. Uh, I've never had the pleasure, um, you know. And I'm not going to go out there and try it just to see what it feels like. I, I have been told, and I'll take it at face value, that a scorpion sting is one of the most painful stings you can get. All right, you'll have to. I'll take his word for it. I'm not going to try it, but. Um, it says their, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. Uh, guys, verse 6 has to be one of the most bizarre verses in the Bible. For these five months, God will not allow death. Or as somebody has said, for these five months, death will take a holiday. Even though the pain from these demonic locusts with scorpion stings will be so horrific that people will desire to die. They will writhe in agony and be obsessed with death and will try to take their own lives. But God will not allow their spirits to leave their bodies for five months. Now, I don't believe this is a cruelty. I believe it's actually a form of mercy. Say, how was that? All right, I get you. Let me put it this way. What would you rather endure? Now, I'm talking about unbelievers now, not you folks. Unbelievers, okay? Talking to an unbeliever who would read this and go, what a cruel God you serve. Okay, sounds like that, but let's break it down a little bit. I would tell them, what would you rather endure? Some of the pain of hell for five months or to be cast into real hell with all of its pain and torment for all eternity? Often we hear people make the claim, hell isn't a real place. Hell is right here, man. This is hell. Okay, well. I can imagine that for some people, life on earth can sometimes seem like hell. But the Bible assures us that hell is a real place. And God drives that home for five months. Where hell comes to earth and God will not allow people to die. You know, it's hard to imagine what life will be like for the people of the earth who have been stung by one of these demon creatures and wants to die. Somebody that's been wants to die, right? Tries to die, but they can't die. I mean, think about it. For five months, when somebody puts a gun to their head, pulls the trigger, and blows half their head off, they're not going to die. Or they jump off a tall building, hit the ground, break every bone in their body, but they're still alive. You say, well, why is God torturing people like this? Well, it, it sounds so cruel. Look, we know our God is not a cruel God. So why is he doing this? Why is he allowing this? It sounds very cruel, right? It's because, guys, by this time, people, 
on the earth, unbelievers, at this time now, during the tribulation period, great tribulation. By this time, people have hardened their hearts so much to God that extreme measures are needed to break them. To break them. Even though I personally believe, as I have shared, that by this time in the great tribulation period and all the judgments that have already happened, whoever is left who has not received Christ, and apparently there's some that are going to get saved and God really ratchets up uh, the judgments, and this is a pretty horrific one, but he does it out of his great love to really break them. I mean, as hard as they want to be, God can be harder in his love to break them, right? But I believe at this point, I don't think there's a whole lot of people who are able to receive Christ at this time. What do I mean? I think many of them, are, by this time, have passed the spiritual point of no return. They have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and now there's no turning back. They have conditioned themselves so much to be against Christ, they're never going to receive Christ. No matter how much pressure God puts on them, no matter how severe the judgment, even though God is trying uh, one last time, you might say, to, to, to reach out to them. Yeah, it's a horrific judgment. But God is basically saying, look, sure, it's agony. Sure, it's horrible. I'm not going to let you die for five months. Guess what? People that wind up in the real hell are going to want to die. They're going to pray to die, maybe. But they can't die because they're already dead. God brings that to the earth for five months. and says, look, I'm giving you one last chance to change your mind and receive my son. Because here's what hell is going to be like, not for five months, but for eternity. You want to go there for eternity? Because right now you have an opportunity to turn around, repent, and come to me. And I'll mercifully forgive you and redeem you, save you, become my child. Live with me in my kingdom forever. But this is your last chance. Your last chance. And so for five months, God will bring the same thing to the earth to give people a taste of hell on earth. So they will repent and not be cast into the real hell. Isaiah 26, verse 9 is a very interesting verse along these lines. Let me read it to you. For when your judgments are in the air. So Isaiah is talking to the Lord. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Remember we, we talked about Amos, where the prophet said, God, in judgment remember mercy and that's our god god you know god doesn't want to judge this idea that god enjoys judging people right and you have people that have this concept of god it's really sad they don't it's obvious to me they don't know god because their whole concept of god is that god just wants to destroy them that every time they get on their feet God knocks him down. God is against me, and God hates me, and, and, and he's just looking for a reason to judge me. That is so wrong and so contrary to who God really is. God loves you, and God wants to save you. He sent his son to die for every single person who has ever lived. And all a person has to do is reach out by faith and say, God, I believe in your son. I believe he died for my sins and rose again. And I received Jesus into my heart as my Savior. And at that moment, God declares that person righteous because the blood of Christ is now applied to their account. 
But if God does bring judgment, and he often has to, I mean, as Billy Graham said many years ago, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. But even in judgment, even as the judgments of God begin with that first seal that Jesus breaks in chapter 6, in the beginning, these judgments are designed to get people's attention. They're so hard of heart, dull of hearing. He's got to ratchet up, uh, you know, things to, to get their attention. It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. Sometimes we get so dull of hearing, God's got to shout. How does he do that? Adversities, trials, tribulations, judgments even. But as Isaiah said, when, you, when your judgments are in the earth, O Lord, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Well, some. Not all, but some. And that's what God's looking for. Now, guys, it seems that after, five, after these five months, these demon locust creatures will have to return to the bottomless pit of the Abusa. And, you know, that's interesting because the normal lifespan of an actual locust is, nine is five months from May to September. And that this will be the length of time God will allow these demon locusts to remain upon the earth. It's a period of judgment, right? Um, you can get a, well, I'm going to tell you so you don't have to get a concordance. Uh, if you were to get a concordance and look up five months, you would also find that that was the duration of the time the water of the flood was upon the earth. Five months. A period of God's, you know, you know. And, and, and why five months? Judgment? Five is the number of grace. Maybe God is saying, I could have left a, a, a judgment on the earth for 50 months, right? But I'm only choosing to do it five months because I'm a gracious God. And even when I judge, I want to show mercy. I want to forgive, right? But it, during this time um, when these locusts are doing their thing and they are stinging uh, people and people are writhing in agony, um, I'm convinced during this time many people are going to pray. They're going to pray to God to make it stop, right? That's what people, other people do. They don't learn. They just want to be free of the judgment. And so I think during this time, you're going to have a lot of people praying. But praying to God to make it stop. But most of them won't pray in the sense of repent. Okay? Look at verse 20. Revelation 9, verse 20. After God unleashes numerous horrific judgments... But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. That's a hard-hearted unbeliever. That's an earth dweller. Earth dwellers will never repent. They're not just unbelievers. We've talked about this. They're people who, this for them, the earth is all there is. This is their home. They're not passing through like we are. Sojourners and pilgrims on our way to heaven, our home. No, this is their home. This is what they know. This is all they want, okay? 
and they're called earth dwellers, 11 times and then once those who inhabit the earth, same group, but 12 times in the book of Revelation, this category of people is singled out. These are the ones who will never repent, who are so hard-hearted that no matter what God throws at them in the way of judgments, their, their hearts are not softened. They're like uh, William Henley's Invictus, you know, that uh, doesn't matter, uh, you know, how, how charged with punishments the scroll. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how straight the, the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. My head might be bloodied but unbowed. God, keep on throwing it at me because you're never going to break me. Well, you know, as we have said, okay. I mean, people can go to hell if they want to. Don't blame God. Don't say, well, how can a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. He's done everything in his power to keep people from going to hell, except forcing them, and God will never force us against our free will to do anything. But if a person wants to resist God, if they refuse to bow the knee to Christ, if they're so hard-hearted they're going to live their life no matter what, in defiance of Almighty God, then they're going to get to hell someday. They're going to follow the devil. I, I, we were witnessing uh, one time at a park, and, uh, uh, and, and a young guy came up, and we engaged him in a conversation. And, and here's what he said. I can't believe in a God who sends people to a torture chamber named hell. And I said to him, I said, do you realize that hell was never made for man? That God made hell for the devil and his angels. But if a person wants to follow the rebel Lucifer and does not want the mercy of God, does not want to bow to Christ as their Lord and Savior, then they're going to follow him all the way to the place where he's going to spend eternity, which is hell. But don't blame God if you go there. Again, as Spurgeon said, if you go to hell, you can get there if you try hard enough. Because you've got to fight the Holy Spirit every step of the way. He was trying to pull you into the kingdom, woo you, uh, you know, try to reason with you, get saved. But Spurgeon said, if you get to hell, if you go to hell, it's be, it, you have to step over the broken and bloodied body of Jesus Christ to get there. Because he's done everything in his power to keep you from hell. Oh, I have to interject this. Um, remember we said a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the rapture. And we said, you know, there are some, and I've heard this. I mean, maybe you have to, you, you're witnessing the people and you're talking about the rapture's coming and the Antichrist and the, God's going to judge the world and Jesus is going to return in right in there. Look, looking at you like, you know, I don't know if this guy's out to lunch or, or what. Uh, they're just staring at you. And then at one point they say, you know what? Okay, I'm going to wait until the rapture happens. And if it, if it happens, I'll know you're right, and then I'll get saved. Well, welcome to the tribulation period, folks. I mean, really? This is what you want to go through? Except Christ now, in the day of grace, right? Why in the world would you want to go into the tribulation period? And I've said this to people. If you can't live for Christ in the age of grace. How are you going to die for Christ in the, in the age of tribulation and great judgment? All right, verse 7. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like 
gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. Now, if anyone reads this, and you know, prone to think, is this John a Valley guy? Like, like, <laughs> like, you know. Um, if anyone reads this and is wondering, are these real locusts? Uh, one commentator says, the repetition of like indicates something other than a literal description is intended. The total impact of this picture is one of unnatural demonic horror, end quote. Putting together verses 7 to 10, many commentators try to interpret this as some kind of military weaponry. Now, in my younger days as a Christian, when I read this, I thought, you know what? I think John is describing some kind of military weaponry. And I held that view for a long time. I have since changed that view. Okay, I firmly now believe that this is some kind of demon army. They come out of the Abuso. All right? I don't think we got any tanks or Apache helicopters stored in the Abuso. So these uh, creatures come out of the Abuso, uh, the bottomless pit. Uh, it's interesting that even real locusts, I went online and I looked this up again because I hadn't done it in a while. It's interesting that even real locusts, if you look at them closely, resemble horses wearing armor. The word locust in German is a word that means hay horse, hay horse. And in Italian, the word means little horse, little horse. There is a prophecy in Joel chapter 2 that I believe has this section of Revelation 9 in view and gives us a terrifying look at what's coming upon the world. So turn to Joel 2. All right, Joel 2, starting with verse 1. Now, again, I really believe that Joel has ultimately in mind the events we're, talking, we're studying in Revelation 9. So verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And again, locusts look like horses. Their appearance is the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set 
in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the walls like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, and his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Wow. I don't know what these creatures look like, but wow. They are going to be everywhere i mean climbing up walls into houses stinging people in their bedrooms in, in you know just everywhere now historically guys the prophecy of joel 2 was fulfilled in joel's day when israel was besieged with natural locusts as god judged them for their immorality and idolatry but the long-term ultimate fulfillment of this uh, prophecy uh, these locusts speak of the demons that will be released from the Abuso uh, that we're reading about in Revelation 9. But as God so often does, nestled among the dire warnings of this terrible invasion of God's judgment, there is a wonderful promise, Joel 2, verses 25 and 6. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. So God is saying, look, even though I am going to judge the nation, I have to. And the locusts are coming, they're going to eat up every ounce of vegetation in the land. There is coming a day when I'm going to show mercy to my people once again. And all that my judgment took away from them, all that the locusts have eaten, I'm going to restore to them. And I believe God is making that promise to this generation. That this judgment is going to be probably the most horrific, I'm guessing, the most horrific that man is ever going to experience. And I do think people will get saved. And God is saying to them, if you repent, as he was saying to Israel, and you turn to me, even though you have been stung by one of these horrible locust demons, if it brings you to me, what I have in store for you after that is a kingdom, a paradise, where you will live for eternity. Again, what is more, what, what do people want more? To suffer the pain of hell for five months on the earth and get saved? Or suffer the pain of the real hell for all eternity? Revelation 9, verse 11. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name 
Apalia. Now those two things basically may mean the same thing. The Hebrew Abaddon is destruction, and in the Greek the name Apollyon is the destroyer. Why does John use both the Hebrew and the Greek? I think he's got both Jews and Gentiles in mind. Nobody's going to escape. Ungodly Jews, ungodly Gentiles, none of them are going to escape. See, the Jewish people especially think that, and, and, and they have been taught to believe this, that, well, the rabbis actually taught that Father Abraham, stands right outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jew, not for, not believing Jews, any unbelieving Jew out of the line of people going into hell because they are children of Abraham and they have been circumcised. And the rabbis teach that as long as you have the blood of Abraham in your veins, God cannot send you to hell. Now listen, Paul picked up on that argument and said, you know, Abraham had two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael had the blood of Abraham, his father, in his veins. He didn't have the faith of Abraham in his heart. Isaac was the son of promise because Isaac was a believer. And everyone who received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are grafted in to the family of Israel. <laughs> uh, they become spiritual Jews, the Bible says, Romans 2. Uh, you know, it, as Paul said, look, um, it's not the rituals, even circumcision. Paul makes it a point to say that Abraham was justified 14 years before he was circumcised. He, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That happened 14 years before he ever was circumcised. So anybody who thinks that as long as you're circumcised, or as a person who has grown up in church, as long as you're baptized, you're in. Roman Catholic, I was taught that. As a Jewish person, maybe you were taught that. All we know is that Abraham had a lot of descendants, a lot of children down through the centuries, traced their lineage back to Abraham. In fact, God told him in Genesis 15, Abraham... I'm going to make your descendants so numerable, uh, so innumerable, they couldn't, they can't be counted. And yet Jesus still said, many will come to me from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom, the Jewish people, many will be cast out. Because they don't, don't believe. They don't believe. And when a Gentile believes, they become a ch child of Abraham by faith who is the father of the faithful. Those who believe. All right, well, who is this angel? Who is this angel called Abaddon and Apollyon? Well, some identify this angel as Satan himself. But Satan isn't bound yet in the abyss. Uh, right now he's free to roam the earth, working his evil as the uh, god of this world uh, and as the prince of the power of the air. So right now, Satan has freedom to roam around. In fact, he has access to heaven. Job 1 tells us that. He comes and goes, and uh, God said to him one day, when the angels of God presented themselves to the Lord, Lucifer came along with them, and God says to Lucifer, where you been? As if God didn't know. I've been cruising around the earth to and fro, back and forth. Have you considered my servant Job? You, you can read about it, right? My point is he gets around. 
quite a bit, uh, and so on. But um, many people believe this angel is Satan himself. I, I don't believe that um, because Satan is not associated with the abyss, the abuso, until he is cast into it by Jesus in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. I think this angel is better viewed as a high-ranking fallen angel in Satan's hierarchy. A high-ranking... Remember now, uh, angels, both good and bad, are categorized by rankings. Rankings. Uh, remember what Paul says? Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Those are rankings of angels. Just like in a regular army, you have your generals and... I'm going to get this wrong. I'm sorry, Teresa. Generals and colonels and captains, and I forgot how it goes, but there are rankings of officers who have more authority than the others. Verse 12. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these. Remember, after the first four trumpets, before the next three sound, God sends an angel to say, I'm going to paraphrase, you think things have been bad up to this point? You ain't seen nothing yet. And calls the last three trumpets woes. Now, as we have said, when you study the Old Testament, you get a concordance and look up the word woe, it's, it's almost always, if not always, associated with judgment. I think classic passages, I think Isaiah 5 or 6, I forgot which one, where I think six or seven times God says, woe to Israel, woe this, woe that. He's pronouncing judgments. And woe judgments are typically the most severe form of judgments that God unleashes upon uh, a people or upon the world eventually. So one woe is past. Verse 12, behold, two more woes are coming after these things. And so the fifth trumpet judgment, also known as the first woe, was not complete. As we just said, unfortunately, the worst is yet to come. We will end it there. God willing, we will pick it up next week with the sixth trumpet judgment and no doubt get into chapter 10. We have some very interesting things yet to study. So come on back. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And even though we believe as your people in the church age, we're not going to see these things firsthand, that you're going to rapture us off the earth, evacuate us before these judgments begin, because we have not been appointed to judgment, but to obtain mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no point in you judging us. We're your children now. We have passed from death to life. We shall never come into condemnation or judgment. So we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word that we might know what is coming. Uh, if for no other reason to share it with maybe unbelievers that we know. Um, hopefully, these things will scare them. I was scared into heaven. Uh, nothing wrong with that, Lord. You scared me into heaven. Uh, and I, you know, Jude says some save with compassion, others save with fear. Uh, dangling their, them over the fires of hell, so to speak, until they get their hearts right with you. Whatever saves a person. We don't care what it takes. We just want to see people saved, starting with our loved ones. Amen. So, Lord, we thank you uh, that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as a thief. We ask you to keep studying the, uh, blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.